Last week we uh, began a series on the Ten Commandments and I, I mentioned last week, you know, quite often in the United States when we're talking about the Ten Commandments, usually we're talking about where they're being posted or not posted or what some court or judge has done with them. And as important as that discussion is, maybe the, maybe the bigger issue, maybe the bigger discussion is, are they posted in our hearts? Are they being lived out in our lives? You know, I know the thou shalt not. <laughs> Woo! Sounds so foreboding, so ominous. But folks, those words are kind. Those words are good and they are good for you. You know, we need to know. We need to know what is absolutely wrong and what is absolutely right. These words will lead us into the safest, into the most prosperous relationship that we can have with God, that we can have with others. They're good words in every way that we look at them and study them and know them. And maybe the best thing about these words is they lead us to Jesus. Because in trying to keep them, we realize we can't. There is no greater daily testimony to our need for Jesus Christ than the Ten Commandments. Last week, we looked at the first great word. You remember that, I hope. It, it talked about the God spot. The first great word is keep God in the God spot. We have a tendency, we have a nature to let, to let people, to let things kind of move in and, and become God-like in our life. And so we were warned to guard against that and watch against that in our lives. And today we come to look at the second and the third. We're going to look at two today. We're going to look at the second and third great words. So if you would, turn with me in your Bible to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. It's the second book into your Bible, Genesis Exodus. If you don't have a Bible with you, I hope you'll use one of ours there. If you can't reach it, I'm sure somebody will hand it to you. We want everybody to be able to read along. Exodus chapter 20, and I'm beginning again in verse 1. It says there, Then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Now remember, folks, that first line kind of sets the context. It sets, it sets who He is, the Lord God, and what He's doing. He's freeing. He freed them from slavery, much in the same way that He freed you and me from the slavery of sin and death. So these ten great words, folks, don't come from a God who said, I'm a really angry judge, and here's ten rules I've made up, and if you can keep them all, then I won't be so angry with you. No, these ten words flow out of somebody who is for you, who's already done work in your life. What's he say? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Do not have other gods besides me. Do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below, or in the waters under the earth. You must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the father's sin to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. 
Do not misuse the name of the Lord your God, because the Lord will punish anyone who misuses His name. Remember to dedicate the Sabbath day. You are to labor six days and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You must not do any work, you, your son or daughter, your male or female slaves, your livestock or the foreigner who's within your gates. For the Lord God made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them in six days. Then He rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and declared it holy. Honor your father and mother so that you may have a long life in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony against your neighbor. Do not covet your neighbor's house, do not covet your neighbor's wife, his male or female slave, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. The second great word, be very careful against your own tendency to try to capture God In your own form. The third great word. Be very careful that you do not misuse his name. I think these two commands kind of go together and they can be summarized. And that's not the goal. They're two very distinct commands. But they can kind of go together and be summarized to be to say, be very careful, be very respectful of who God is. You know, folks, we we have a an incredibly kind and gracious God. And because of that kindness, because of His work, He allows us into a relationship with Him that the Scripture says we can enter, and it talks about words, we can enter that relationship joyfully. We can enter that relationship boldly. We can come into that relationship and we can literally call this great God that we heard just sung about with all those great words, I can call Him Daddy. And the Scripture says He calls me friend we get to come into a very personal very real relationship with God but these commands remind us that as you and I have that kind of access don't ever forget who he is don't ever forget who you are he's God you're not be careful now let's understand what these two words have for us. If you're ever on the, on the game of Jeopardy, and I, I hope you are, and uh, the, let's see, it would be the, and the answer is, what is the first commandment broken after the Ten Commandments were given? Buzz in real quickly and say, what is the, first com- the second commandment? The second commandment. Now folks, two weeks in a row, I have read these 17 verses. What I didn't read is go on and and read the context beginning in verse 18 of of where they are and what's happening. The Israelites are here at the base of Mount Sinai. They're, They're looking up on top of Mount Sinai and they're seeing the glory and the awesomeness and the and the presence of God. And Moses is there and he's receiving these Ten Commandments from them. It is an awesome scene. Now, when you and I go to an awesome scene, happen up on an awesome scene, a lot of times we want to get closer, don't we? Man, I, I want to see what this is. I want, to see this. I want to say I was there. Hey, did you hear about what happened? I was there. We want to get close to a big moment like this. We want to get close to a big scene like this. You read verse 18, though, and 19, and you know what? That's not what they did. They didn't get close. They got further away. 
They wanted to distance themselves. You see, there is, there is such an awesomeness that it can actually scare you. And they were so overwhelmed by the awesomeness of the presence of God's glory and power that they, they distanced themselves from Him. They saw it though. Oh, can you imagine that? What you and I hold by faith, they saw it. I don't know that any nation was more the recipients of the opportunity to be eyewitnesses to God's power, His presence, His glory. No nation more so than the Israelites. So how, pray tell, did they build a golden calf? Six weeks. Not, not 60 years, not six years, six weeks after this moment, they chiseled, they formed, they fashioned a calf, set it there and said, that's God. That, that, that's who made me. That's who's guiding me and protecting me. How? How do they witness and see what they did and then turn around and do that? Of course, it's not really just about the Israelites, isn't it? It's about all of us. How is it that we can form and fashion something and then step back and call it God and let it reign as God in our lives. I, Isaiah had the, same, had the same question. I really like the way he asked this. This is in Isaiah 44, 19. He says, no one, not one person, no one reflects, no one has the perception or the insight to say. Now that's a real fancy biblical way of saying you're kind of stupid, ain't you? What it says in the Hebrew. I'm just. No one has the perception or insight to say, I burned half of it, and he's talking about a block of wood. I burned half of it in the fire, baked bread on its coals, roasted meat and ate. I'll make something detestable with the rest of it and bow down to a block of wood. Isaiah's saying, What sense does that make? How dumb is that? But now. You and I, we would agree with that, wouldn't we? I mean, we're, we're, in, we're an educated culture, a scientific culture. We would look at idol worshipers and those kind of pagan societies. You know, I think, I think people do that, you know, on the other side of the world somewhere. I mean, we call that kind of superstitious. We would probably say, man, that's just, that's just stupid. How, how, how does somebody do that? As a matter of fact, I think as you and I, as we, as we come to the Ten Commandments and we read commandment number two, we check that one off. I'm good to go on that one. Got, got, got number two covered. Don't break that one. Or do we? Is it, is it quite possible that you and I maybe struggle with idolatry just as much as that person on the other side of the world bowing down to some idol? Now, as we start to understand this second command, we need to understand it is not a duplication of the first command. You know, you can read through these and, it's, you know, verse 3 says, don't have any other gods. Verse 4 says, don't have any idols. Well, idols is just kind of another name for false gods, isn't it? Sounds like he's just kind of repeating himself, but they're actually two very different commands with very distinct ideas. In the first command, he's warning against something that we do, I think, really unconsciously. That's what we talked about last week. Without even knowing it, I can allow something, I can allow someone to kind of begin to take on a godlike quality in my life. They start to fill that God spot. I can unconsciously do that. This is warning against 
consciously choosing to form, to fashion a God and then set it over your life. You make something and then you let it reign as God in your life. Idolatry is warning against you and I letting God become the product of our hands, but watch this, and our mind. You see, what I think our biggest issue today for most of us is not a, an idol that we have formed or fashioned with our hands, but folks, every bit as real as a physical idol is a mental idol of how and what we think about God. E ever been in maybe in a, in a Bible study? Can you imagine that? A Bible study? And, and we go around the circle and we, uh, we say, you know, when I think of God, I like to think of God as... Or, or maybe we say, you know, I, I, don't, I don't as much like the passages about Jesus being judge. I, I don't really like looking at Jesus as judge. I like, thinking, uh, I like thinking of Jesus more as Savior. I think those are pretty common thoughts we have. Welcome to Idolatry 101. You are now an idolater. You see, folks, no more is God the product of your chiseling and chipping and, and polishing and rubbing no more is he the product of that than is he the product of your thoughts and desires. He's not the product of what you like to think of God. He's not the product of what you're comfortable with, with God. He's not the product of how you like to see God. He is who he has revealed about himself. Now let me throw a little bit of a curveball at you because folks, down through the ages, most theologians, most believe that there is idolatry going on in the church with our pictures of Jesus, with our statues. You see, when you read this, you and I read this command, and we say, well, this is, this is not me. I don't live in India. I don't live in some, some tribe where they do that. We don't worship idols here in America. We tend to think this is about pagan religious. But folks, this is a command given to God's people. The warning is to you and me, to you and I who know the true God. Don't try to bring him down and encapsulate him in some form. Now, I know you're probably still stuck back on me calling you an idolater because you have a picture of Jesus in your house. And you're thinking, Are, do, do, do you really think that's idolatry? Is that idolatry if I've done that? You know what? I am. Uh, I'm not sure. I know it's my job to kind of be up here and be sure and to tell you to be sure. I, I, I'm not so sure. I don't know that I'm comfortable saying either yes or no. I think there's a possibility, there's a way of having a, a picture of Jesus in your house that is not idolatry. But I do agree, it's very easy, and this is what this command is warning us against in our nature, it's very easy to slip over into idolatry when we use pictures and statues and religious relics to help us worship. I, I have heard people say, I've actually heard my own ears look right, talking right to me. You know, I go in my room and I've got this picture of Jesus. And, and when I look at that picture, it, just, it helps me to focus on him. It helps me to think about him. It, it just kind of helps me in my prayer life. Or, you know, the church I go to, I like that church because it's, it's got these statues and, and these kind of like holy relics. And, you know, and, and when I'm in that, I, I just feel closer to God and, I, and it kind of helps me to worship that is idolatry. You're now letting physical objects represent who and what God is. And that is a problem. Now, I know we, we can look at that. We can hear that when you think, 
you know, I don't get it. I mean, okay, you know, the pagan culture is on the other side of the world. But if, if I'm using something that helps me to think about Jesus, if it helps me to love him and it helps me to worship him, I mean, what, what's the big deal? Well, you know what? Good question. Fair question. Let me, let me give you five reasons. It's a real big deal, even if it's about worshiping what you would call the one true God, Jesus Christ. Idolatry, and, and this comes from... Uh, R. Kent Hughes, he's a favorite author of mine. He wrote a book called Disciplines of Grace, which is a study on the Ten Commandments. It's, it's helped me a lot in my study for this series. And in that book, he gives five reasons that idolatry is a big deal. First of all, idolatry is limit, limiting. Folks, God reveals himself as infinite. That means he has no boundaries. He has no spatial boundaries. He has no time boundaries. The moment I try to capture him in any kind of form, I've just limited what God has revealed about himself. You call it innocent, you call it good, doesn't matter what you call it, you have limited God the moment you try to encapsulate him in a form. It's also obscuring. It, it presents to you something, and you might even get a, you know, a little warm fuzzy, maybe your liver quivers when you get near that object. Uh, you know, you feel like, ooh, that's, that's like saintly and, and holy, and it kind of makes me feel close to God. It has obscured the real glory of of God. There is no object in this universe. There's no created thing that can represent the glory of God. Let me give you a little understanding of the glory of God. We actually looked at this last fall when we were going through a, a brief study of Revelation in the end times. You remember we were looking at that and it said that in the new heaven and the new earth, there, there will be no need for the sun and the moon. A lot of times people read that and they think there is no sun and moon. It's not what the passage says. It doesn't say there won't be a sun and a moon. It says there'll be no need for it because the glory of God is so great. Folks, I could, I could light a match right now. Now, in, in a certain environment, a match might, might bring about a lot of light. But if I light a match right now, you're, I mean, you'll see it, but it won't have any impact. It won't make any difference. Not with all of these lights in this room right now. It, it, just, it almost becomes meaningless as a form of light. Folks, that's what the glory of God is going to do to our sun. Go outside today and look at the sun. Take your sunglasses off and just stare at it, eyes wide open. That's going to last about how long? Half a second, right? It hurts. It burns. That's how powerful the light of the sun is that is 93 million miles away. I'm pretty sure that's accurate. It's been a long time since earth science. Just think of that. You look at that sun just for a moment today to burn your eyes. The glory of God is so great, you won't even tell the sun is on. That's what we're talking about. So any kind of object is obscuring his real glory. That is not helping us know him. It's not helping us wor worship him or get close to him. It's localizing. The scripture teaches me that God is everywhere present. Now that's hard to get my arms around. I don't, I don't, you know, how can that be? How can God be 100% here in this room, 100% outside, 100% at other churches, 100% at home? He is. There, there's no more of God when you arrive here than there is, watch this, there's no more of God in here than there is in the place where you're really not supposed to be as a Christian. When you're in a place, in a moment you shouldn't even be, guess what? There is just as much God in that moment as there is right here in this room right now. Now, that's hard for me to understand, so I've got to guard against anything that places them 
inside of a frame, inside of an object where I localize them and I put them in a spot. That's not going to help me understand his characteristic of being everywhere present. It's projecting. An object projects an image, but it does not project the image of the real God. It projects the image of the God I'm comfortable with. It projects the image of, of God the way I want to see Him. Folks, He's not the God of the way you want to see Him. He's the God who is. That's what His name actually means. I am the God who is. Not the product of my mind. Not the product of what I'm comfortable with. The God who is. And lastly, it's controlling. I mean, folks, and I think this is where our sin actually begins to take over. There's something that's comforting to us about an object because in that moment... I actually have control of God. I mean, can you imagine that? Really, the sovereign God of the universe, eternal and infinite, inside a frame. And, and, and I'm moving, I'm moving real soon, so I'm going I'm to take the frame off the wall. I'm taking God off the wall. I'm going to put him in the box. I'm going to bubble wrap him, of course. Okay, and then I pick the box up, and I move, and I come over here, because, you know, the sovereign God can't move by himself. I've got to move him over here with me. And then I unpack the box, and I put the frame back. Oh, God's back in his spot. Now, you know what, folks, I, I doubt anybody's ever had that exact thought. But that's what our nature is, and that's what we're doing. So the bottom line is, idolatry is limiting. The bottom line is, idolatry actually robs you of the God you need. Remember, I said these commands are for us. They're for our well-being. Now, my physical nature coupled with my sin nature, wants to bring God down. I want to capture Him. I want to encapsulate Him. I want to get Him in a form I'm comfortable with. I want to get Him in a form I can control Him. But you know what, folks? That's not the God I need. I, I, I don't need a God that I need to go into the other room to see. I, I don't need a God that I've got to go somewhere to see. I do need that everywhere present God. I do need that all-powerful God. I need a God that can pick up and move himself one, one, one room to the next. Don't you? We need the real God. Idolatry robs us of that. Folks, what we're fighting here is, is our own mind or the populace. mind. You think the world has a God that they want us to have? And the world's, you know, I like to think of God like this. We want God to be like this. Well, God wouldn't do that. And they ignore what Scripture says. Folks, our drive is into God's Word to see who and what God has revealed about Himself. Not the product of my mind, not the product of popular opinion, but God as He's revealed Himself. Look at another statement R. Kent Hughes made in his book. When we keep it negatively, we cleanse and protect our soul of every wrong thought of God. And when we keep it positively, we fill our soul with the knowledge of God, which comes from where? The world? My thoughts and ideas? No, it comes from His Word and His Son. And if you do this, you see God more and more for what He is. And in so doing, you will be able to love Him more and more and will thus worship Him better and better. This Word is for your good. Now, it comes with a really harsh warning. And as a matter of fact, it's, it's just a couple of words, but it's some of the strangest words we read in Scripture when it says, God is jealous. Why, why, why we're taught in Scripture that, that jealousy is a sin. And now all of a sudden it's using this and saying, God is jealous. How does that work? 
Well, this is an interesting word in the Hebrew language. The best way to translate this word is the word jealous. Unfortunately, that's not a good translation. Did, did you understand what I just said? Okay, good. Well, then we'll just move on to the next point. Uh, no, here's the thing. The Hebrew word that is there, the best way to translate it into the English is the word jealous. But the Hebrew word has a very heavy connotation to it that has a light connotation in the English language. In the Hebrew, this word jealous also carries with it the idea of being zealous and passionate. God is zealous. God is jealous for you and I to have a pure and undefiled understanding of what he's revealed about himself. Why is he so zealous for that? Why is he jealous for that right thinking? Because, folks, your well-being is tied to it. Your well-being, your health, your strength, your life is totally and completely tied to right and accurate thinking about God. You see, if I'm thinking little of God, less of God, unworthily of God, ultimately that's going to have an impact on my faith. It's going to have an impact on my resolve to obedience, which means it's ultimately going to impact the power and the presence and the blessing of God that I enjoy in life. God is zealous for us to have his blessing. He is zealous for us to know his presence and wrong thinking is not going to lead us there. He is zealous. He is jealous to guard that for us. Not only does it affect our lives if we don't guard it. But folks, when you and I don't think accurately about God, there is a high probability that we're going to pass that inaccurate thinking on to our children. And that's what the rest of this passage is talking about. And it, a lot of times it's referred to as a generational curse or the sins of the fathers being passed to their children. And so what God is saying here in this passage is, you know what, Randy, if you if you are not careful with what I've revealed about myself, if you're not respectful of that, if, if you bring an idol into your mind, an idol into your home, I'm just going to I'm just going to step back and say, OK, you, you choose an idol. I'm going to let that run in your life. And it's going to run into your children and it's going to run into your grandchildren and it's going to run into your great-grandchildren. Three, four generations down the road are being affected by my inaccurate, uncareful thinking of God. And you see why God's warning of us this? This is, this is a big deal. I don't want to affect my great-grandchildren that way. And folks, you know what? I think the problem is not just in our biological families. I think it's in our church family too. The church in the United States of America is more and more becoming utterly irrelevant and impotent in its communities and societies. And I believe by and large it's because there's a curse in the church. God didn't create us, didn't design us, didn't bring us together to be irrelevant and impotent. He brought us together to have a great impact on this world and society. And yet that's not what the church in America is doing. Do you know why? Because we've not been careful with God. We're not careful with how we think of Him. There is idolatry in the church. Not on the other side of the world. There is idolatry in the church. And we've reduced God down to something that we carry around in our pocket. We've reduced him down to something we carry around and we and, and the church has lost its power and presence of God. Folks, pray that we communicate 
Not what Southern Baptists think. Not what Colonial Heights Baptists think. Not, not what makes everybody feel good. Pray that when we study the living God, we are only studying what He has revealed about Himself. And the day we stop doing this, pray God destroys this property. Pray He destroys this building and closes it so that we have no influence and impact on people three and four generations down the road. Because that's what churches are doing in America today. Pray it doesn't happen here. Folks, this isn't a game. It's not a little thing. This brings destruction into our lives. Now, you deal with the harshness of that. Please balance it against what God's offering. Yes, for the person who not, will not be respectful and careful with what God has revealed about himself, there could be three to four generations of curses. But for the one who will respect and study and be careful with what God has said about himself, for that person, there is a thousand generations of kindness. Folks, what's God? Is that a pretty good offer? Stay away from this. Three or four generations of bad stuff. Come over here. A thousand generations. Do you see God's heart? Folks, when God judges, when He brings a curse, He does so absolutely righteously, purely, fairly. There is no wrong in that. We can't do that very well. He does it perfectly. But folks, judgment is God's strange work. Grace, blessing is God's natural work. That is what He desires to do in your life. And He's warning you against the things that will stop that. Pray for an idle free life. Pray for discernment and wisdom to your own mind and thinking about God. Lord, if there's any way in my life that is less than You, that is unworthy of You, point that out to me. God, is my understanding of You being developed by Scripture or is it being developed by conversation around the coffee pot? Is it being developed by TV and the popular mind and popular opinion of God? You know really what we're praying for? God, make me a disciplined student of Your Word so that daily I'm growing in and being held accountable to Your revelation, to what You have said about yourself. Thinking about God is not a game. It's not a pastime. Neither is how we use His name. Folks, you can't, you can't come in here and, and say, I respect the name of God, I love the name of God, and then go out and use it as an obscenity. You can't do both. You can't respect and honor and worship and then come around and use it as an expletive. You cannot do both. Folks, obscene language is the door to every evil in society. That's a big statement. You have to think about whether you agree with that. I've got some wonderful illustrations of it, and I'm running out of time, so I'm not going to use them. I'm out of time, as a matter of fact. But folks, cussing is what brings in murder and rape and adultery and sexual immorality and perversion and pornography. Every evil in society enters through the door of obscene language. And there's some incredible illustrations of it right in our own society. It all begins with that. God says if you go down that road, you'll not only bring all that stuff in, but you'll begin to mock and use my name in a way that's inappropriate. God knows where it's going, and so He warns us against it. If you go down that road, you'll misuse my name. Folks, when we say G's and Jesus and GD and, and these different things, do you know what we're doing in that moment? We are in that moment literally declaring, 
I'm God. I'm God. I have all authority and power. And this name, this name is my slave. And I throw it around and I use it for, for what I want. Now, now, you know what we'll say? What? That's not, that's not what I meant to say. That, that's not what I was trying to do. I, I, I mean, when it came out, it was just an accident. No. No, it wasn't an accident. You could pull my children aside. You could, you could tell them about one of my favorite lectures that I give. I've given it, oh, eight, nine, ten thousand times. They'll be doing something, and I'll say, you know what? If you keep doing that, it's going to break. If you keep doing that, it's going to spill. If, if, if you keep, you're going to break it if you do that. I say that a lot, don't I, Colin? Yeah, he said, <laughs> don't put a camera on him. Um, and they invariably, not invariably, but then sometimes you know they'll, they'll keep doing it. And, then I'll, and this is my, my famous lecture. You know what? You're going to break that. You're going to spill that. And when you do, you're going to say, it's an accident. And I'm going to say, no, it wasn't. It is not an accident because you were warned. Folks, it's not an accident when you throw out his name in a way that it's not supposed to be thrown out. You were warned. It will bring judgment and punishment into your life. It will bring a host of evil into your home and into your family and into your society. It's not an accident. Folks, when you and I respect and honor the name of God, it brings His blessing, it brings His presence. That's what He wants us to know, not as punishment. His name is awesome. It is special. It is powerful name. And we need to treat it like that. Folks, think of just a, a precious few verses and what they say about the name of God. Look at these verses. Acts chapter 4 says there is salvation in no other, what? Name. No other name under heaven. How many names are there? Millions? In all of human history, how many names are there? Millions and millions of names. But do you know, folks, you've got one name in all of human history, one name that will give you an opportunity to be rescued from sin and death and hell. Just one name. What a powerful name. And when you and I come to faith in that name, what a special name. Can we possibly utter a greater, more important, more special word than the name Jesus? Romans 10 says the name th same thing. Whoever. It's such a powerful name, it covers whoever. Whoever they are, whatever they've done, wherever they've been, this name can cover all of that. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Philippians chapter 2. There's going to be a day when every single knee. Think about that. Not just the knees that are alive today on this planet. All will be resurrected, folks. Death does not mean you cease to exist. Death just means you move into one of two camps. The camp that will be eternally rewarded and live with God and His angels forever in heaven or the camp that will be eternally judged and punished in hell with Satan and his angels. But before that great division, there will be a moment when every knee... You know, we're talking today about forming and fashioning an idol physically or mentally. Do you know that God formed this knee? He actually made it. Chiseled it, put it together. He formed that knee. And you know what? I haven't always used that knee to do what God wants. 
I've sometimes let that knee take me to places I don't belong. This knee that he formed and created has not always honored and exalted him. But there will be a day when every human throughout this universe will hear the name of Jesus and that knee will bow to its creator. That knee will come to humility before its creator. That's a name, isn't it? Can you imagine that? No other name. Jesus. And this knee knows it was created by him and it will bow. And that name is so good in our lives. Jesus says, if you ask me anything in my name. See, a name is more than just something on a birth certificate, folks. A name, his name represents his character. When you ask anything inside of my character, when you ask anything inside of my will, when you ask anything inside of my personality, we just heard a whole bunch of that in that song, didn't we? When you ask anything inside of that, you've got it. I will do it. That is the authority of that name that God, here's the thing, we can use that name. We can use it in that way. What an awesome name God has given us. And how incredibly devastating, how sad that the church, not the big, bad, ugly world, not the pagan worshipers on the other side of the planet, but the church has not been careful with God. The church is offering a God you can be comfortable with and a God who just wants to make you successful and happy. Here, put them in your pocket and carry them around. Pull them out when you need them. The only problem with that is everything that goes in my pocket usually gets discarded. See, folks, that's where God's goodness is. He understands my nature. He understands what I'm like. And He knows if I'm not careful with how I think about Him and understand Him, if I'm not careful with how I speak His name, if I'm not studious to what He has revealed, I will ultimately discard Him, which means I will lose all that I can possess in Him. And God, not you, God is zealous jealous to guard that for you. Are you? We love that song. Lord, you're holy. That word holy means set apart, distinct, special. If you can compare this to that, if you can compare A to B, then neither one of them are holy. Holy means incomparable, absolutely distinct, unlike anything else. God is holy. And that means my thinking about Him should be set apart. It's not the way I think about anything else. There is a devotion, there is a commitment, there is a drive and a passion to know and understand what He has revealed and I will be careful, so careful with how I think about Him that my thoughts are holy, they're set apart, they're distinct, they're not like any other thoughts in my life. How I utter His name will be holy. I will utter that name unlike I would utter any other name name in a human language 
there will be a devotion, a carefulness, a love, a respect, an honor when I utter the name Jesus Christ. Did you know that you cannot, with all that God gives us in the Bible to know about Him, did you know you cannot think highly enough of God? You cannot think highly enough of God. So my dear friend, give everything in your life to guard against anything that makes you think lowly or less of Him. Because your life is in His name. Let's pray. Father, I pray this week that You would again give us wisdom, give us discernment. God, as we're, as we're driving to work, as we're going about our day, as we're doing the things we do, God, as, as thoughts of You and, and, and words of You do flow through our mind, Give us wisdom and discernment to think, is that thought something I know Scripture revealed? Is that thought something I know that God revealed about Himself? Or is that just my thought? Am I worshiping the God of my production? Is that the God that the popular mind, the world wants me to know and have? God, give me discernment. Give me wisdom to see this. I don't want any wrong thought in my life about You, God. I want the best and highest thoughts possible. And, and God, I want that for me. I want that for a thousand generations after me. I want that for thousands of church members and our family and, and the society and the community that we leave here to, to touch and the impact for you. God, would you guard and guide our mind, give us a passion, a discipline, and a devotion to go to your word and grow in our understanding of what you've revealed. Help us to be careful with your word. Help us to know how to respond to people all around us that every single day are not going to be careful because they don't know you. They don't know anything about you or what you've revealed. God, I don't want to be an idolater. And I want to use your name in the highest and most wonderful way possible. And I need your help. And we turn that turn to you now for that. It's in the name of Jesus Christ that I pray this. Amen.